an abridged reading of Manifesto Against Labor by Crisis Group, 1999. A corpse rule society, the corpse of labor. All powers around the globe formed an alliance to defend its rule. They don't know but one slogan, jobs. But the society ruled by labor is encountering its absolute limit. In the wake of the microelectronic revolution, wealth production increasingly became independent from the actual expenditure of human labor power to an extent quite recently only imaginable in science fiction. No one can seriously maintain any longer that this process can be halted or reversed. Selling the commodity labor power in the 21st century is as promising as the sale of stagecoaches has proved to be in the 20th. But whoever is not able to sell his or her labor power in this society is considered to be superfluous and will be disposed of on the social waste dump. Meanwhile, the paranoid cry for jobs justifies the devastation of natural resources on an intensified scale, even if the destructive effect for humanity was realized a long time ago. The very last obstacles to the full commercialization of any relationship may be cleared away uncritically, if only there is a chance for a few miserable jobs to be created. Any job is better than no job becomes a confession of faith, which is extracted from everybody nowadays. And yet the more it becomes obvious that the labor society is nearing its end, the more forcefully this realization is being repressed in public awareness. The globally evident fact that labor, in its capitalist form, proves to be a self-destructive end in itself is stubbornly redefined into the individual or collective failure of individuals, companies, or even entire regions. The objective structural barrier of labor has to appear as the subjective problem of those who were already ousted. Those who fail in finding favor in the eyes of the labor idol have to take the blame, can be written off and pushed away. Such a law on how and when to sacrifice humans is valid all over the world. The logic of profitability will punish any country that does not adapt itself to the blind working of total competition unconditionally and without regard to the consequences. There is no controversy on whether ever-increasing sections of the population shall be pushed to the margin and excluded from social participation. The anti-neoliberal faction of the socially all-embracing labor camp cannot bring itself to the liking of such a perspective. On the other hand, they are deeply convinced that a human being that has no job is not a human being at all. Nostalgically fixated on the post-war era of mass employment, they are bound to the idea of reviving the labor society. Whether such jobs have rhyme or reason, not to mention any meaning, does not matter at all. The crisis of the labor society has completely ridiculed the claim that labor is an eternal necessity imposed on humans by nature. So how can a true law of nature enter into a state of crisis or even disappear? Or how can they explain that three quarters of humanity are sinking into misery and poverty only because the labor system no longer needs their labor? It is not the curse of the Old Testament, in the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread, that is to burden the ostracized any longer, but a new and inexorable condemnation. You shall not eat because your sweat is superfluous and unmarketable. That is supposed to be a law of nature? This condemnation is nothing but an irrational social principle, which assumes the appearance of a natural compulsion because it has destroyed or subjugated any other form of social relations over the past centuries, and has declared itself to be absolute. It is the natural law of a society that regards itself as very rational, but in truth only follows the instrumental rationality of its labor idol. Labor is in no way identical with humans transforming nature or matter and interacting with each other. 
As long as humankind exists, people will build houses, produce clothing, food, and many other things. They will raise children, write books, discuss, cultivate gardens, and make music, and much more. This is banal and self-evident. However, the raising of human activity as such, the pure expenditure of labor power to an abstract principle governing social relations without regard to its content and independent of the needs and will of the participants is not self-evident. In ancient agrarian societies, there were all sorts of domination and personal dependencies, but not a dictatorship of the abstraction labor. It fell to the modern commodity-producing system as an end in itself, with its ceaseless transformation of human energy into money to bring about a separated sphere of so-called labor, alienated from all other social relations and abstracted from all content. In the sphere of labor, it does not matter what is being done, it is the act of doing itself that counts. Above all, labor is an end in itself, especially in the respect that it is the raw material and substance of monetary capital yields, the limitless dynamic of capital as self-valorizing value. That's why all products must be produced as commodities and for no practical reason. Only in commodity form, products can solidify the abstraction money, whose essence is the abstraction labor. Such is the mechanism of the alienated social treadmill holding modern humanity captive. For this reason, it doesn't matter what is being produced or what use is made of it, not to mention the indifference to social and environmental consequences. Whether houses are built or landmines are produced, whether books are printed or genetically modified tomatoes are grown, whether people fall sick as a result, whether the air gets polluted, all this is irrelevant as long as, whatever it takes, commodities can be transformed into money and money into fresh labor. The fact that any commodity demands a concrete use has no relevance for the economic rationality for which the product is nothing but a carrier of once expended labor, or dead labor. The accumulation of dead labor, in other words capital, materializing in the money form, is the only meaning the modern commodity producing system knows about. What is dead labor? A metaphysical madness. Yes, but a metaphysics that has become concrete reality a reified madness that holds the society in its iron grip. In perpetual buying and selling, people don't interact as self-reliant social beings, but only execute the presupposed end in itself as social automatons. The political left has always eagerly venerated labor. It has stylized labor to be the true nature of a human being and mystified it into the supposed counter-principle of capital. Labor was not regarded as a scandal, only its exploitation by capital. As a result, the program of all working-class parties was always the liberation of labor, and not liberation from labor. Yet the social opposition of capital and labor is only the opposition of different, albeit unequally powerful, interests within the capitalist end in itself. Class struggle was the form of battling out opposite interests on, this, on the common social ground and reference system of the commodity-producing system. It was germane to the inner dynamics of capital accumulation. Whether the struggle was for higher wages, civil rights, better working conditions, or more jobs, the all-embracing social treadmill with its irrational principles was always its implied presupposition. From the standpoint of labor, the qualitative content of production counts as little as it does from the standpoint of capital. The only point of interest is selling labor power at the best price. The idea of determining the aim and object of human activity by joint decision is beyond the imagination of the treadmill inmates. 
If the hope ever existed that such self-determination of social reproduction could be realized in the forms of the commodity-producing system, the workforce has long forgotten about this illusion. Only employment or occupation is a matter of concern. The connotations of these terms speak volumes about the end-in-itself character of the whole arrangement. Capitalists and managers hardly control society by means of the malevolence of some subjective will of exploitation. They are only the mere functional executives of the same irrational social end in itself. They are allowed, least of all, to think about the meaning and consequences of their restless action, and they cannot afford emotions or compassion. Therefore, they call it realism when they devastate the world, disfigure urban features, and only shrug their shoulders when their fellow beings are impoverished in the midst of affluence. While most humans are no longer under the thumb of a personal master, human interdependence has been transformed into a social totality of abstract domination, discernible everywhere but proving elusive. Where everyone has become a slave, everyone is simultaneously a master. That is to say, a slave of his own person and his very own slave driver and warder. The abstraction of labor becomes a central social constraint without regard to actual needs. Today, class struggle is all over because labor society's time is up. As the labor society is passing away, classes turn out to be mere functional categories of a common social fetish system. For a short historical moment after the Second World War, it seemed that the labor society, based on Fordistic industries, had consolidated into a system of eternal prosperity pacifying the unbearable end in itself by means of mass consumption and welfare state amenities. Apart from the fact that this idea was always an idea of democratic helots meant to become reality only for a small minority of world population, it has turned out to be foolish even in the capitalist centers. With the third industrial revolution of microelectronics, the labor society has reached its absolute historical barrier. That this barrier would be reached sooner or later was logically foreseeable. From birth, the commodity-producing system suffers from a fatal contradiction in terms. On the one hand, it lives on the massive intake of human energy generated by the expenditure of pure labor power. The more the better. On the other hand, the law of operational competition enforces a permanent increase in productivity bringing about the replacement of human labor power by science and technology-driven industrial capital. This contradiction in terms was in fact the underlying cause for all of the earlier crises, among them the Great Depression of 1929 to 1933. Due to a mechanism of compensation, it was possible to get over those crises time and again. After a certain incubation period, then based on the higher level of productivity attained, the expansion of the market to fresh groups of buyers led to an intake of more labor power in absolute numbers than was previously rationalized away. Less labor power had to be spent per product. More goods were produced absolutely to such an extent that this reduction was overcompensated. As long as product innovations exceeded process innovations, it was possible to transform the self-contradiction of the system into an expansion process. But this mechanism of compensation becomes defunct in the course of the third industrial revolution of microelectronics. It is true that through microelectronics many products were reduced in price and new products were created, above all in the area of media. However, for the first time, the speed of process innovations has become greater than the speed of product innovation. More labor is rationalized away than can be reabsorbed by the expansion of markets. 
As a logical consequence of rationalization, electronic robotics replaces human energy or new communication technology makes labor superfluous, respectively. Entire sectors and departments of construction, production, marketing, warehousing, distribution, and management vanish into thin air. For the first time, the labor idol unintentionally confines itself to permanent hunger rations, so to speak, thereby bringing about its very own death. In the midst of wealth, poverty and hunger are coming home to the capitalist centers. Production plants are shut down, and large parts of arable land lie fallow. A great number of homes and public buildings are vacant, whereas the number of homeless persons is on the increase. Capitalism becomes a global minority event. Necessarily, the crisis of labor also entails the crisis of state and politics. In principle, the modern state owes its career to the fact that the commodity-producing system is in need of an overarching authority guaranteeing the general preconditions of competition, the general legal foundations, and the preconditions for the valorization process, inclusive of a repressive apparatus in case human material defaults the systemic imperatives and becomes insubordinate. Organizing the masses in the form of bourgeois democracy, the state had to increasingly take on socioeconomic functions in the 20th century. But as the state is not a valorization unit itself, and thus not able to transform labor into money, it has to skim off money from the actual valorization process to finance its functions. If the valorization of value comes to a standstill, the coffers of the state empty. Reported to be the social sovereign, the state proves to be completely dependent on the blindly raging, fetishized economy specific to the labor society of capitalism. The state may pass as many bills as it wants if the forces of production, the general powers of humanity, outgrow the system of labor. Positive law, constituted and applicable only in relation to the subjects of labor, leads nowhere. As a result of the ever-increasing mass unemployment, revenues from the taxation of earned income drain away. The social security net rips as soon as the number of superfluous people constitutes a critical mass that has to be fed by the redistribution of monetary yields generated elsewhere in the capitalist system. However, with the rapid concentration process of capital in crisis, exceeding the boundaries of national economies, state revenues from the taxation of corporate profits drain away as well. The compulsions thereby exerted by transnational corporations on national economies who are competing for foreign investment result in tax dumping, dismantling of the welfare state, and the downgrading of environmental protection standards. That is why the democratic state mutates into a mere crisis administrator. And the more the state approaches financial emergency, the more it is reduced to its repressive core. Infrastructures are cut down to proportions just meeting the requirements of transnational capital. Whatever can be privatized is privatized, even if more and more people are excluded from the most essential supplies. No policy conceivable can stop this process or even reverse it. By its essence, politics is related to social organization in the form of state. When the foundations of the state edifice crumble, politics and policies become baseless. As the social end in itself specific to the labor society is an axiomatic presupposition of Western democracy, there is no basis for political democratic regulation when labor is in crisis. The end of labor is the end of politics. Present time labor employed is replaced by the tapping of future time labor that will never be employed in reality, capital accumulation taking place in some fictitious future, so to speak. 
monetary capital that can no longer profitably be reinvested in the so-called productive economy and is therefore unable to consume labor, has increasingly to resort to financial markets. The speculative process is a dilatory tactic to defer the global economic crisis, as the fictitious increase in the value of legal titles is only the anticipation of future labor employed to an astronomical magnitude that will never be employed, the lid will be taken off the objectified swindle after a certain time. These interrelations are completely distorted by the fetish awareness of the labor society, inclusive of traditional left-wing and right-wing critics of capitalism. Fixated on the labor phantom, which was ennobled to be the trans-historical and positive precondition of human existence, they systematically confuse cause and effect. The speculative expansion of financial markets, which is the cause for the temporary deferment of crisis, is then just the other way around, detected to be the cause of the crisis. The evil speculators, they say more or less panic-stricken, will ruin the absolutely wonderful labor society by gambling away, quote, good money, instead of bravely investing it in marvelous jobs. It is beyond them that it is by no means speculation that brought investment in real economy to a standstill, but that such investment became unprofitable as a result of the Third Industrial Revolution. The speculative takeoff of share prices is just a symptom of the inner dynamics. Any attempt to tap this bubble by means of whatsoever tax, like the Tobin tax, to divert money flows to the ostensible, correct, and real social treadmills will most probably bring about the sudden burst of the bubble. But the fundamental crisis of labor society is repressed and made a taboo. Labor, no longer, as it would be correct, stands for the capitalist form of activity carried out in the in-and-itself treadmills, but has become a synonym for any goal-directed human effort in general, thereby covering up its historical tracks. A rebirth of radical critique of capitalism depends on the categorical break with labor. Only if the new aim of social emancipation is set beyond labor and its derivatives, that is, value, commodity, money, state, and so forth, a high level of solidarity becomes possible for society as a whole. Until now, the left shirks the categorical break with labor society. Systemic constraints are played down to be mere ideology. The logic of the crises is considered to be due to a political project of the ruling class. The categorical break is replaced by social democratic and Keynesian nostalgia. The left does not strive for a new concrete universality beyond abstract labor and the money form, but frantically holds on to them. They have long forgotten that capitalist commodity consumption was never about the satisfaction of needs, but is and has always been nothing but a function and mere byproduct of the valorization process. It is the task of theory to fiercely attack the ban on thinking and to say loudly and clearly what nobody dares to think, but many people sense. The labor society is nearing its end, and there is definitely no reason to deplore its demise. It is necessary then to describe in broad outline what are the possible goals for a world beyond labor. However, it is not a canon of positivist principles that feeds the program against labor. Rather, it is the power of negation. In the course of the enforcement of labor, the basic means and social relations constituting life were alienated from humans. The negation of labor society is only possible if people reappropriate their capacity of social existence as social beings on an even higher historical level. 
only in struggling against the monopolization of all social resources and potentials for market wealth withheld by the powers of alienation as objectified in the market and the state, can social realms of emancipation be conquered. Commodity production will then be replaced by open debate, mutual agreement, and collective decision of all members of society on how resources can be used wisely. These means of production will no longer be mobilized in the form of commodity production for the anonymous markets. It will become possible to establish the institutional identity of producers and consumers, unheard of and unthinkable under the dictate of the capitalist in and itself. Market and state institutions once alienated from human society will be replaced by a graded system of councils from town district level to the global level, where associations of free individuals will decide about the flow of resources and letting prevail sensual, social, and ecological reason. Keep in mind these are only suggestions. No longer will labor and occupation as an end in itself govern life, but the organization of the wise use of common capacities, which will no longer be subjected to the control of the automatic, invisible hand, but will be conscious social action. When labor vanishes, the abstract universality of money and state will dissolve as well. A one-world society with no need for borders will take the place of the separated nations, a world where everybody can move freely and will be able to avail himself of universal hospitality. The opponents of labor will certainly be accused of being nothing but dreamers. History has shown that a society that is not based on the principles of labor, repression, free market competition, and egoism cannot work, they will say. Do you, apologists of the prevailing order, really want to claim that the capitalist commodity production has brought about at least a passable life for the majority of the global population? Do you call it smooth working if, due to the rapid growth of the productive forces, billions of humans are ostracized and can consider themselves lucky when they can survive on waste dumps? What about the fact that the world is made a desert currently just to breed more money out of money? That's the way the marvelous labor system works. To be honest, we really don't want anything to do with such exploits. Our contention is not that every activity will turn into pure pleasure. Some of them will, some of them will not. It goes without saying that there will always be necessities. But who will be scared of that if it doesn't consume one's life? There will always be more that can be done of one's own accord. Being active is as much a need as leisure. Even labor was not capable of wiping out this need, but exploited it for its own ends, thereby sucking it dry like a vampire. The abolition of labor is anything else but obscure utopia. In its present form, global society cannot survive for more than 50 or 100 years. The more the crisis of labor society is worsening and reformist attempts of repair work fail, the more the gap is widening between the so isolated and helpless monads as constituted by capitalist society and the potential formation of a movement that is ready to reappropriate the socially constituted species capacities. The rapid degeneration of social relations all over the world proves that the old ideas and sentiments on labor and competition are unshaken, but are readjusted to ever lower standards. Step by step, de-civilization seems to be the natural course of the crisis, despite widespread discontent and unease. Especially because of these bleak prospects, it would be fatal to refrain from criticizing labor practically by means of a comprehensive, socially all-embracing program, and to confine oneself to the scraping of a bare living in the ruins of labor society. Criticism of labor will only stand a chance if it swims against the tide of de-socialization, instead of being carried away by it. 
Those who aim at the emancipatory reappropriation and transformation of the entire social fabric can hardly ignore the authority that has so far organized the general conditions. It is impossible to rebel against the expropriation of the social general capacities without heading for confrontation with the state. The state guarantees that all social capacities are compulsorily subject to the dictates of valorization. It is a truism that the opponents of labor cannot ignore state and politics. Yet it is also true that the opponents of labor cannot succeed in being supportive of the state. If the end of labor implies the end of politics, a political movement for the abolition of labor is a contradiction in terms. The opponents of labor make demands in the state, but they do not form a political party and will never do so. The whole point of politics is to seize power, that is, to become the administration, and to carry on with labor society. That's why the opponents of labor don't want to take the control centers of power, but want to switch them off. Our policy is anti-politics. State and politics of the modern age and the coercive system of labor are inseparably entwined and have to disappear side by side. Self-organization and self-determination, however, are the exact opposite of state and politics. Winning social, economic, and cultural freedom is not feasible in a, politically, in a political roundabout way through official channels or other wrong tracks of this sort, but in constituting a counter-society. Freedom means that human beings organize their social relations on their own without the intervention and mediation of an alienated apparatus. It is now a question of combining a counter-social practice with the offensive refusal of labor. May the ruling powers call us fools because we risk the break with their irrational compulsory system. We have nothing to lose but the prospect of a catastrophe that humanity is currently heading for. We can win a world beyond labor. Workers of all countries, call it a day. Run.